Today on the Table Talk Podcast, Season 2, we're going to start a new series on being United Methodist in the Bible Belt. And that means we're going to talk about our favorite guy, John Wesley. Oh yeah, the founder of Methodism. We're going to talk about grace and sin. And then we'll finish up with what now? You guessed it, a little more grace. (laughs) Welcome to Table Talk with Mike and Angela. Welcome to Table Talk with Mike and Angela, a weekly conversation focused on helping you understand more about the Bible, faith, and what it means to live a faithful life. And now, here are your hosts, Pastors Mike Holly and Angela Martin. Well, Angela and I want to welcome you to season two. And in this go round with Table Talk, as United Methodist pastors, we're going to talk about something related to what we know. Uh, We're going to be looking at United Methodism through the lens of a book by F. Belton Joyner called Being United Methodist in the Bible Belt. And I think this is appropriate because we're Methodists, because we work in a Methodist church, and because I think Alabama is part of the Bible Belt. Yes, we are definitely in the Bible Belt. Uh, The I-20 corridor in Alabama with Anniston and Birmingham and Tuscaloosa is in the top five most church cities in America before the COVID-19 pandemic. Oh, yes. Worship attendance has uh, really changed during this time of physical distancing. But so we do find ourselves as United Methodist pastors in the so-called Bible Belt. So I think it's important for us um, at this time to take a moment to understand um, and think about what it means to be United Methodist, to sort of rediscover that and talk about what's unique about it and also uh, what are the challenges that we face as well. So first of all, we need to admit uh, both to ourselves and to others that, you know, we're Christians first. And then we're United Methodists. You know, we're part of this worldwide family of Christians that we refer to in the creed as the one holy Catholic church with a lowercase c, Mm -hmm. meaning that we're part of this unified worldwide family. Um, But we're also a part of this subgroup, this subfamily of United Methodists. While we're part of the larger family and part of the connection of that, We also find ourselves in this unique, uh, distinct family of Christians called United Methodists. And so we want to spend a little bit of time talking about what that means. Yeah. And I think what we may need to do first is admit that United Methodism came from another denomination. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, lived and died uh, as an ordained Anglican priest in the Church of England in the 1700s. And here in the United States, the sister denominations to the Church of England are the Episcopal and the Anglican churches that are part of a worldwide communion of churches. Uh, Methodism came from John Wesley's ministry of leading a revival within the Church of England. Right. So not only was, was he an Anglican priest, but he was also the son of an Anglican priest, uh, raised primarily um, in the faith and tutelage of his mother. Um, But then he went off to college and became a priest, 
Um, he then went off to the colony of Georgia here in the United States and preached in the areas near Savannah and St. Simon's Island. Uh, that ministry did not go well. Uh, and he then came back to England and uh, really sort of struggled to understand what faith really meant and what his calling was. One night he attended a Bible study on the New Testament book of Romans on Aldersgate Street with some Moravian Christians. He had encountered the Moravians in his travels uh, to the colonies, the United States. And it was at this Bible study that he felt his heart strangely warmed, uh, where he, he sort of had this encounter with God's grace and he finally trusted in God at that moment. And that led to this revival. Yeah, grace became a vital part of his ministry as he led a revival with his brother Charles and, and others. And they focused on helping people through preaching and teaching, being part of small groups, uh, and making sure they were involved in acts of faith to help people also, you know, help others encounter God's saving grace. But John Wesley taught that uh, coming to faith is not the goal of the religious journey. It's important, it's critical, mm -hmm. it's necessary, but it's not the goal. And I think in the Bible Belt, sometimes we kind of put up a great deal of emphasis on that moment that we come to faith. You know, there are people that can often recite that exact date and moment. You know, they walked down the aisle, right? You know, and they, they came to faith or they might say they were saved or they were born again. But again, this is critical and important, but the religious journey is so much bigger um, and more expansive. And I think that one thing that maybe keeps us, is, I, I think especially here in the Bible Belt, uh, one thing that keeps us fixated on that moment uh, of belief, that moment we come to faith being the most important is that for over a thousand years, our theology has been colored by the satisfaction atonement theory of Jesus' death, and it impacts the way we understand our faith. Now, I know we don't do a lot of studying about our atonement theories. You know, in Sunday school, it's not your favorite Sunday school lesson to have, but it is so important uh, to understand, I think, our theology. Denny Weaver, several years ago, wrote this essay titled Violence in Christian Theology. Uh, it, Denny Weaver is a professor of religion at Bluffton College. And he wrote about uh, the satisfaction atonement theory, uh, and there are other versions of that. Sometimes it's called the penal substitutionary theory or the moral influence theory. Uh, but the satisfaction atonement theory says that Jesus' death was necessary in order to satisfy the offended honor of God. Well, who offended God? We did, right? Humans did with our sin. So Jesus was punished in our place. And the death of Jesus is seen as a loving act of God who shows his love by giving us his son to die for us. The various versions of satisfaction atonement function with the assumption that doing justice or righting wrongs depends on retribution. 
Because as Weaver looked at it and asked questions about uh, these theories, what he found was that it made God look like this avenger, you know, or punisher. And so we kind of take that on. Uh, we assume that doing justice or righting wrongs depends on retribution, uh, that it accommodates violence. And we see this idea of retributive justice in our world. For example, the criminal justice system operates on that principle of retribution without, most of the time, I would say, the opportunity for rehabilitation and reconciliation. And so we see this violence and how we as Christians justify it in the name of defending God's honor. The satisfaction atonement theory uses only the death of Jesus. And so the belief that has grown out of this is that we believe that our salvation is found only in the death of Jesus. It doesn't take into account the birth, the life, the teaching, the death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so in that regard, it separates us from kingdom ethics. It separates us from how Jesus taught us to live. So if we believe that we only have to focus on the death of Jesus and why he died to be saved, then everything he taught was for naught. Uh, through the ages, this inattention, I think, to the ethics Jesus taught has led Christians to accommodate violence in the name of colonialism and war and slavery and racism. We can believe that we are saved, but in our day-to-day -day life, we don't necessarily have to live as though we are saved. And so I appreciate this about Wesley so much that he places this equal importance on repentance and faith and holy living. Right, and, and I think that, that it's clear that the Gospels also emphasize all of the aspects that you've mentioned. You know, the, the, the passion of Jesus, the, the portions of scripture leading up to during Holy Week to the cross and to the empty tomb and resurrection on Easter are important, they're vital. There, there is ample room in the gospels about this, but there are also all of these places where Jesus discusses what God wants for people, what God desires for people, what the kingdom of God looks like. And so Wesley uh, talked about this, this idea of going back to primitive Christianity. And in primitive Christianity, we think of something primitive as being something sort of, you know, old and obsolete. Yeah. But for him, it meant, you know, original, um, you know, the sort of unfiltered, the, the sort of uh, really clean gospel message that took all of those things into account. And so he took this idea of giving back to that original, clean, you know, unfiltered gospel, that understanding of God. And through that, like you said, he found an equal emphasis upon repentance, faith, and holy living. Not only in the gospels, but just look at the writings of Paul, who talked mm -hmm. over and over about grace and about our need for that. But he also talked a lot about how we live in the church and in the world. So 
you know, what John Wesley did was spark, along with others like Charles, this revival within the Church of England uh, to help people re-engage themselves into a lifelong journey of faith. A lifelong journey of faith, not just a moment of salvation, not to consider yourself on God's team because you were baptized, mm -hmm. but to understand yourselves on a lifelong journey, a, a, a relationship with God that is dynamic over time that helps us to shed off or repent of our old lives of selfishness and sinfulness and separation, moving us into a life of faith, and then even further into a life of holy living uh, as, as God works in and through us throughout our lives so that we come to reflect Christ more and more. We become not just the people saved by God, but we become partners in ministry with God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Wesley, in writing about the doctrines of, of this new faith that he was forming, he said our main doctrines, which include all the rest, are three, that of repentance, of faith, and of holiness. And, um, and then he, he gives a great illustration, I think. Um, he says the first of these we count, as it were, the porch of religion, the next the door, and the third is religion itself. And so he compares salvation to a house, right? To get into the house, you have to first get on the porch, which is repentance, you know, you confess and ask forgiveness. Uh, and then you have to go through the door. And the door is that moment of faith, confessing your belief in Jesus Christ as Lord. And then the house itself, one's relationship with God, is holiness and holy living. Wesley's ministry after Aldersgate Street was to help the people of England who were walking in a fog of separation from God to enter God's house and have a relationship with him. Remember that, uh, you know, God as creator created the world and everything in it. This is going to sound a little bit like a review of our, uh, the Bible in 10 words, That's right? right. Adam last and year's, Eve. last yeah. season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, God created everything, right? Us, the world. Um, and he called his creation good. Uh, we were created in the image of God and he called us very good. Uh, being in the image of God suggested at least three things about us as his people. Uh, one, we are created to be in communion with God. We are created to be in relationship with one another. And we are to be stewards of God's creation. And in these three ways, we are to be reflections of God. But as we know, that original goodness is shattered when Adam and Eve break all three dimensions of being in the image of God. Uh, communion with God? No. Uh, they do something God has asked them not to do. And remember that, uh, that verse in Genesis where God comes walking in the garden, right? And Adam hides from God. Uh, the second relationship with one another? No, they broke that too. And in their brokenness from God, they break from one another and suddenly they are ashamed to be in each other's natural presence and they try to hide their nakedness from each other. 
And then, of course, the third one, trying to be stewards of God's creation. Uh, they didn't do that very well either. In fact, Adam and Eve go after the one part of creation that God has said you cared for by leaving alone. And so these actions by Adam and Eve resulted in sin, uh, that condition that separates humankind from God's image. And we often refer to this sin as original sin. And uh, we think about it as being marked by it as well, because the sin is part of our origin. It's part of our beginning. It's part of the Adam in us. Uh, it's part of the human condition. And, and John Wesley, in his preaching, covers uh, sinfulness and what happens uh, with the human condition when we turn away from God, like Adam and Eve. He talks about original sin, but, but he also mentions what he calls actual sins, which sort of sounds like there are non-actual sins out there. But, you know, when he talks about actual sins, he was talking about the way um, or, or the way that persons willingly did things that separated them from God and from God's intended will in their lives. And so each and every one of us not only is marked by this original sin, but we also carry the actual sins, the things that we have done. It, part of United Methodist theology is that every single person sins. And again, this comes from our greater connection with that worldwide family of, of Christians who mostly agree on this. You know, we, we come from a, a human family that is in a condition of sin. All persons um, think and act in ways that are shaped by personal self-service rather than by God's will or the things that would honor God. And God doesn't want things to stay this way. And that's, the, you know, the wonderful thing about God is that he acts out of love, not out of this, this feeling of being, you know, uh, really having his honor taken away, but out of love for humanity, out of love for his creation, he wants to do something about it on our own in our state of sinfulness. We can't do anything about it. We can't break free uh, from what you know, Paul, Paul calls the bondage of sin. No, that's where God out of his love steps in and out of grace, God can do something about it. Yeah. Well, that repentance and faith and holiness, you know, all three are gifts of God's grace. And it is vital uh, for us as United Methodist Christians to understand that grace is a gift. You know, we can't earn it. We can't work for it. We can't achieve salvation on our own. It is given by God. God grace is God's freely given undeserved gift. And it is a central theme to United Methodist thinking and for the core energy for United Methodist action. So we wouldn't be very good United Methodist summarizers if we didn't <laughs> acknowledge that grace itself was organized um, by John Wesley in terms of his understanding of God's grace. Uh, within three different realms. And I want to make it clear that this is not three different kinds of graces. This is three different ways in which grace works in our lives. It could be that it's all the same grace, 
but experienced in these three aspects or ways. Uh, United Methodists speak about grace in three different, let's say, shapes. Provenient grace, justifying grace, and sanctifying or perfecting grace. To go back to the imagery of the house that Wesley helped us encounter, uh, provenient grace is the grace that invites us onto the porch all the way up to the door. It's this understanding that God is active and working in our lives, uh, prodding us, uh, wooing us uh, to him. Uh, justifying grace is the grace that opens the door. You know, God is the one that opens the door. We're the ones that step through, you know, but, but he's the one that opens the door and, and brings us in. And so this justifying grace is, is the, the grace that moves us from outside the house to being inside the house. And then finally, sanctifying grace is that grace of what it looks like for us to live as a member of the household, to be a part of the family, that we're not just as we were when we stepped into the house, but that over time we're becoming more and more like the master of the house. Again, provenient grace is the love of God wooing us, bringing us to him. It's the, the will of God drawing us to him. It's the desire of God pursuing us throughout our lives to bring us into friendship and relationship with him. You know, when we think about infant baptism, which we practice in the United Methodist Church, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in coming episodes, we, we talk a little bit about provenient grace in a way when we acknowledge that we baptize children who cannot answer for themselves. They're not at the age or stage of their lives of being able to claim it for themselves. Before we claim it, before we can name it, <laughs> I, I usually say before we can even utter the name of God, God's grace is at work in our lives. This is that provenient grace wooing us to him. Justifying grace is the grace that we receive at the moment of belief. You know, we talked about the idea of that moment of salvation or being born anew or born again. Justifying grace is that. It is essential and important. It's in that grace that we find faith in God and that our sins are washed away, uh, that we become uh, right-wised, made right with God, and that we find ourselves at that moment, like Wesley, at peace with God, uh, feeling that we do trust in his grace. Mm -hmm. Wesley said that the immediate effects of justifying grace are that moment of peace with God and hope in Christ. Again, just like the moment where he felt his heart strangely warmed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but United Methodists understand that being saved is not just a matter of getting into heaven, right? It's not the golden ticket. Uh, it is a full gift from God that is even more than heaven. Uh, you don't have to wait until heaven to receive the rewards of your belief, right? Uh, you move into a life of faith that is then empowered by this sanctifying grace that you speak of. Uh, and it's the grace that stays with us throughout our lives forever, helping us to live lives of holiness and growing us and perfecting us in God's perfect love. 
thanks be to God for that, because <laughs> I need it every day. Amen to that. Well, United Methodists believe deeply in grace-formed holiness, like you were saying. And that will be clear as we continue in our walk through what it means to be United Methodist in the Bible Belt. I think it's important for us to understand that while we sometimes have these sort of conversations uh, within the Christian family of Baptists believe this, or you know Methodists believe this, or Episcopal, all of that sometimes gets sort of confusing. But here in the United Methodist family, I think that you know, what we need to acknowledge is that we're, we're talking about the same gospel that everybody else has. We're talking about the same grace that everyone else experiences. We're just talking about it in language that is distinct to the United Methodist mm -hmm. Church. It's just like we have four gospels. We have four different perspectives from four different authors about the very same Messiah uh, and Son of God. We're talking about grace that works in every single Christian, whether they can articulate it in Wesleyan words like provenient and justifying and sanctifying, which, you know, some of them do come from Greek and, uh, and the language of the church itself and the gospel. But we're all experiencing this same grace. Um, this is just a distinctly Methodist way of talking about it. In talking about sanctification, this idea of going on to perfection. I love the fact that United Methodists have this way of articulating how God's grace continues to work in our lives after the moment of salvation, after the moment that we receive justifying grace, in that we are being worked on and renovated by God so that we might have the mind that was in Christ Jesus, as Philippians says, so that we might be spurred on by God's grace into love and action, that God is not done with us ever, that there's always uh, grace working on us to make us more and more like Christ in mind, in body, and in action. In a sense, as Christian people, what we really, really understand is, from a United Methodist lens, is that all of us have to be rooted in faith, grace, love, and action. It is all of these, and probably even some more that we'll get to later on in our conversation. <laughs> but at least at the same time, we have to understand that the Christian journey, the life that we are in, the, the trajectory that we are on with God, is rooted in these areas, faith, Grace, love, and action, all of these are vital to our relationship with God and our relationship to others. We receive from God this grace that becomes the way that we interact with God. It's how we have a relationship with God that is established and is, and is nurtured over time. But it's also grace that helps us become who we are and how we live in relationship with God and others and to the world itself. So to be United Methodist is to be someone who is on this lifelong journey of complete mind, body, and soul renovation. That's who we are. Yeah, that's great. If you learn nothing else today about United Methodist, it's grace, right? Yeah. The answer to every question is grace. That's right. <laughs> Uh, so as we close today, uh, we wanted to challenge you with a couple of questions that maybe you can take and, and think on this week, ponder, uh, if you will. Uh, the first is uh, that perhaps this week you can think about where you are in your faith journey. 
You know, are you still sitting on the porch? Uh, Are you standing in the doorway? You believe, but you haven't quite fully made that commitment to walk on in the house and and, uh, and make that commitment to holy living. Uh, And then the other question is, how do you experience God's grace in your life? You know, maybe you can really be observant and really look for God's grace this week and and form a new appreciation for how God's grace works in your life. That's great. And I hope you really do think about all of those questions Angela shared, because it's important for us to understand uh, where we are in our relationship with God and what steps we need to take next. I hope you will join us uh, next week for the second session or the second podcast in this new season. And we're going to be talking about uh, what it means to be the people of the book, the Bible, what it means to have uh, faith and understanding through four important guides given to us through the Wesleyan uh, tradition. So we hope you will join us next week. We'll talk to you soon. Take care.